Hey everyone, this is Knight Errant Dean Thomas Keith, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today is episode 240 for October 4th, 2021. It is now officially fall here in the, well, I guess at least in the Northern Hemisphere, and it is National Cybersecurity Month here in the United States. So as you might imagine, we're going to cover some uh, some cybersecurity tips, some top cybersecurity tips this week. But I've also got some other big news. I was <laughs> I was waiting for basically an excuse to do this. Uh, and, you know, why not do it National Cybersecurity Month? So for this next month, I am bringing back the challenge coins. So if you missed your opportunity last summer to get one of my super cool, highly collectible, security-enhancing D20 dice coins, now is your chance to get one. So stay tuned at the end of the show, and I'll give you more information about that. But we've got plenty of news to cover this week as well. A bunch of Netgear routers, very popular Netgear routers, have got a nasty bug, and I'll tell you how to fix that. There's yet another tool for law enforcement and government agencies to scrape our social media and public profiles to gather a ridiculous amount of information about us. The NSA and the CIA actually are using ad blockers because online advertising is so dangerous, something I've been saying for a long time. Microsoft has rolled out a new passwordless feature. I'll tell you a little bit about how that works and whether or not you might want to use that. HTTPS is now basically everywhere. And I'm going to talk about the update to the classic Electronic Frontier Foundation browser plugin called HTTPS Everywhere and its, uh, its new feature. And then Amazon just rolled out a home robot called Astro, which is a great name, kind of a throwback to the Jetsons, I guess. Very clever marketing on their part. Even though Rosie was the robot back then, Astro was just the dog. Anyway, I am totally dating myself, but uh, the reviews are starting to come in and they are not good. First of all, apparently it's kind of a buggy device, which is, you know, that could be fixed. But it's also basically a roaming surveillance device, so we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit. And of course, I'm going to have some tips from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, our fairly recently created security group here in the United States for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, week number one. And that will actually not be my tip of the week. And the tip of the week, as promised, I told you I was going to talk about the really cool new security and privacy features in Apple's iOS 15, which also will be in the iPad OS 15. They used to have the same OS, and then they split them off. But the features will be in both. And there's some really cool ones there. Um, so we're going to talk about those. Now, there's a couple other stories that I'm, I'm following that uh, I'm probably not going to get to this week, but I may get to in the future. Uh, but just to let you know, I'm looking at these. Uh, the Wall Street Journal just had a series of articles, uh, some pretty damning articles on Facebook. Of course, they're all behind a paywall, so a lot of what I've seen has been mentions of those articles and not the actual articles. But there's some very interesting and troubling information in those articles, so I'm going to try to figure out a way to get to, the, get to that information and present it to you at some point. And there's also been some rather disturbing developments in the VPN world. It's always been kind of shady, honestly, especially for some of the free VPNs. But a lot of the VPN review sites have also been very shady, very much built upon affiliate links, which is a marketing way of saying they get kickbacks for the reviews. But it's really gotten bad lately. And it's something you probably have not seen in the news, but something you should be aware of. Anyway, I'm aware of it, and uh, I will try to get that covered on a future news show. But there's plenty to talk about today, so let's get to it. All right, first up, if you own a Netgear Wi-Fi router, listen up. Um, if you've got basically any modern one, uh, this this bug seems to have affected most of them. And it's really just kind of crappy the way this happened. So anyway, let me read this article real quick from Tom's Guide. Because of an optional parental control feature that apparently wasn't so optional, nearly a dozen widely used Netgear home Wi-Fi router models have a serious security flaw and need to be patched. The affected models are the, and I'm going to read these off here, that's kind of repetitive, but you might recognize one of these numbers. R6400 V2, R6700, R6700 V3, R6900, R6900 P, R7000, R7000 P, R7850, R7900, R8000, and RS400. Most of them in the Nighthawk line, and physically nearly identical. Firmware updates are now available for all of them. 
The flaw could be exploited by a bad guy who gets access to your Wi-Fi network, which may not always be as hard to do as it seems. And then to seize control of your home or small office network and send you God knows where on the internet. Because Netgear markets its home routers using somewhat misleading terminology, for example, the R7000 is also labeled as a Nighthawk AC1900 Smart Wi-Fi Dual Band Gigabit Router, you might want to flip your router over and check the sticker on the bottom to read the real model name. The problem here stems from the Disney-designed Circle parental control feature, which was rolled out to Netgear Nighthawk and Orbi mesh routers, some of them already in customers' homes, as an optional add-on feature in 2017. The Orbis and newer Wi-Fi 6 Nighthawks got parental control software built in-house by Netgear earlier this year, while the Circle service was discontinued for older Nighthawk models in late 2020. Here's the catch. If you have one of the affected routers, the vulnerable Circle software is on your device regardless of whether you ever ponied up the $4.99 monthly charge for the Circle feature. And this is a quote from Adam Nichols, uh, who's from the grim security firm software. He said in his blog post, quote, The Circle Update Daemon, which is just a little computer process that runs in the background, that contains the vulnerability is enabled to run by default even if you haven't configured your router to use the parental control features. While it doesn't fix the underlying issue, simply disabling the vulnerable code when Circle is not in use would have prevented exploitation on most devices, unquote. What he's basically doing there is chiding Netgear and or Disney for running this service in the background by default, whether you paid for it or not, which left all these devices vulnerable. All right, back to the article. In other words, you've got a problem that came with software you probably didn't ask for and that may have been introduced to your device via firmware update after you bought it. We've run a lot of Netgear router security alerts in the past few years, with at least two in 2020. So we want to reiterate that Netgear's consistent policy of finding, patching, and publicizing its security flaws is a good thing, despite the resulting negative headlines. The only reason you don't hear about many security flaws from some other major router makers is because they don't tell you about the flaws. At least we know when something goes wrong with Netgear routers and how to fix it. To update your router's firmware, Netgear's security advisory recommends going to its support page at https colon slash slash www.netgear.com slash support, then punching in your model's number. From there, you'll be taken to your model support page. You can download a zip file to your PC and unpack the file. Then use your favorite web browser to access your router's administrative interface. It's most likely at http colon slash slash 192-168.1.1. Click the advanced tab, select administration, and click router update. You can upload the file to the router from there. However, for most of these routers, it's going to be just as easy, so much easier actually, to download the firmware update directly to the router. Follow the web administrative interface instructions in the paragraph above, and then click the Check for Update button instead of uploading a file from your PC or Mac. So yeah, uh, that's by far the, way, the easiest way to go. So you should know your admin password for your router, and it should be something new and unique that you set, not the default. Uh, and when you do log into the administrator interface on your web on your router, there should be some place in there to quickly and easily check for updates and apply them, uh, if there are any. And most modern routers at least have that function. So yeah, that's that's going to be the easiest way to do it. All right, next up, this is from the Intercept, and it's titled "Shadow Dragon Inside the Social Media Surveillance Software That Could Watch Your Every Move." This is a longer article, but here's the part that I think is important. A Michigan State police contract obtained by The Intercept sheds new light on the growing use of little-known surveillance software that helps law enforcement agencies and corporations watch people's social media and other web activity. The software, put out by a Wyoming company called Shadow Dragon, allows police to suck in data from social media and other internet sources, including Amazon dating apps and the dark web, so they can identify persons of interest and map out their networks during investigations. By providing powerful searches of more than 120 different online platforms and a decade's worth of archives, the company claims to speed up profiling work from months to minutes. Shadow Dragon even claims its software can automatically adjust its monitoring and help predict violence and unrest. That should be raising the hairs on the back of your neck. Michigan police acquired the software through a contract with another obscure online policing company named Caseware, that's spelled with a K, for an quote-unquote MSP Enterprise Criminal Intelligence System, unquote. The inner workings of the product are generally not known to the public. The contract and materials published by the companies online allow a deeper explanation of how the surveillance works. Shadow Dragon has kept a low profile but has law enforcement customers well beyond Michigan. It was purchased twice by the U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, in the last two years. 
documents show and was reportedly acquired by the Massachusetts State Police and other police departments within the state. Michigan officials appear to be keeping their contract and the identities of Shadow Dragon and Microsoft from the public. The Michigan.gov website does not make the contract available. It instead offers an email address at which to request the document, quote, due to the sensitive nature of this contract, unquote. And the contract it eventually provides has been heavily redacted. The copy given to David Goldberg, a professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, had all mentions of Shadow Dragon software and Microsoft Azure blacked out. What's more, Goldberg had to file a Freedom of Information Act request to obtain the contract. When the state website did offer the contract, it was unredacted, and I downloaded it before it was withdrawn. Last year, The Intercept published several articles detailing how a social media analytics firm called Dataminer relayed tweets about the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests to the police. The same year, I detailed at The Intercept how Caseware's partner Microsoft helps helps police surveil and patrol communities through its own offerings at a network of partnerships. This new revelation about the Michigan contract raises questions about what digital surveillance capabilities other police departments and law enforcement agencies in the U.S. might be quietly acquiring. And it comes at a time when previously known government social media surveillance is under fire from civil rights and liberties advocates like Media Justice and the American Civil Liberties Union. It also raises the specter of further abuses in Michigan, where the FBI have been profiling Muslim communities and so-called black identity extremists. In 2015, it was revealed that for years the state police agency was using cell site simulators to spy on mobile phones without disclosing it to the public. Caseware and Shadow Dragon are part of a shadowy industry of software firms that exploit what they call open source intelligence, or OSINT. That is, the trails of information that people leave on the internet. Clients include intelligence agencies, government police, corporations, and even schools. Caseware, which is partnered to Shadow Dragon and Microsoft, provides a platform for activities that support OSINT and other elements of digital policing, like data storage, management, and analysis. Its capabilities range from storing evidence to predictive policing. By contrast, the two Shadow Dragon products acquired by the Michigan State Police are more narrowly tailored for the surveillance of people using social media, apps, and websites on the internet. They run on the Caseware platform. Now, this article goes on and on and on, um, and you if you're interested at all, uh, there's a link, of course, in the show notes to read the whole thing. Uh, but a couple more interesting quotes, I want, or a couple more interesting things I want to pull from this article. And one of these um, was a quote. I actually, I missed the, who, who said this in the article, but it says, when the FBI started using SocialNet, which was another one of these systems talked about later in the article, they did an evaluation and concluded that what used to take us two months in a background check or an investigation is now taking between 5 to 15 minutes, unquote. And then later in the article, it actually lists some of the 120 sources. And I just want to rattle some of these off for you. Um, they include Amazon, Etsy, Facebook, Flickr, Google, Instagram, LinkedIn, OkCupid, Pandora, PayPal, Pinterest, Pornhub, Reddit, Skype, Spotify, Steam, Telegram, Tinder, TripAdvisor, Vimeo, Yahoo, Yelp, YouTube, and Zillow. So yeah, they're scraping up tons of information. I mean, you know, I get it. I <laughs> I can see why they would want to do this. And honestly, the real probably root issue here is that all this information is available in the first place. But nevertheless, this is this is not good. And we need to be aware that these things are going on so that we can make a stink when we hear about things like this and have more ammo when we're fighting for things like data minimization, which is a, sorry, it's a fancy term of art in the industry, basically meaning not to collect so much damn information from people. Okay, uh, next up, this is from vice.com, and it's about the NSA and the CIA's uh, recent admonition for using uh, ad blockers, which I just think is great. So anyway, let me read from this article. It says, lots of people who use ad blockers say they do it to block malicious ads that can sometimes hack their devices or harvest sensitive information on them. It turns out the NSA, CIA, and other agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, or IC, are also blocking ads potentially for the same sorts of reasons. The IC, which also includes part of the FBI, DEA, and DHS, and various DOD elements, has deployed ad blocking technology on a wide scale according to a copy of a letter sent by Congress and shared with Motherboard. The news highlights the continued risk from the online advertising ecosystem. Some hackers leverage how adverts are delivered to send target devices malware. Data brokers and potentially intelligence agencies can leverage the ecosystem to gather information on devices and, by extension, people, sometimes including their physical location. 
The IC taking steps to protect itself from the dangers of the advertising ecosystem shows just how malicious it can be. With malvertising, hackers upload a malicious advertisement to an ad network, which then distributes it to targets. Previous cases of malvertising have redirected victims to exploit kits, which then break into the victim's computer to steal data. In addition, Motherboard has reported on how data brokers may obtain information via a process called real-time bidding. And that may sound familiar, it's because we talked with Johnny Ryan about that just a couple months ago. Before an advertisement is placed in a person's app or browsing session, companies bid on whether their own advert will win the ad spot. As part of that process, participating companies can gather data on people, known as bidstream data, even if they didn't win the ad placement. Motherboard previously reported that Ventel, a U.S. government contractor, obtains some of its location data from the real-time bidding process. But that access could extend to foreign entities. Senators Ron Wyden, Mark Warner, Kirsten Gillibrand, Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, and Bill Cassidy previously wrote to a group of tech companies including AT&T, Verizon, Google, and Twitter with their concerns that ad networks might be leveraged by foreign intelligence services. Responses from some of the tech companies showed that hundreds of relatively obscure and overlooked companies are potentially provided with sensitive data on Americans. The companies included ones based in Russia, China, and the United Arab Emirates. So this is from the letter that uh, Ron Wyden and those senators sent. It says, quote, This information would be a goldmine for foreign intelligence services that could exploit it to inform and supercharge hacking, blackmail, and influence campaigns. I write to urge the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, to protect federal networks from foreign spies and criminals who misuse online advertising for hacking and surveillance by setting clear new rules for agencies and its forthcoming zero-trust security policy. While the intelligence community has acted to protect its personnel and computers from malvertising-based threats, many other federal agencies have not, and are unlikely to until they are required to do so. To that end, as OMB finalizes its recently released draft Federal Zero Trust Strategy, detailing the specific actions that OMB is requiring federal agencies to take to secure their systems from hackers, I urge OMB to also require agencies to implement the CISA and NSA guidelines to block ads, unquote. So that, to me, is really telling. It's First of all, it's great. <laughs> I'm really glad. I mean, our government finally, finally, and this maybe this is because of CISA. I, it's probably due to a lot of things. But our government seems to be finally taking cybersecurity seriously and realizing that privacy and data mining is all part of that process. All of this data that is out there just waiting and begging to be mined can be used against people, can be used to blackmail and coerce or fish or target in other ways. It's it's just horrible. And it's, we, we've got to rein this stuff back in. But I guess on a more basic level, use ad blockers. <laughs> Absolutely use ad blockers. I mean, I get it. I know these websites need to make money to survive. I know that they do that through advertising because nobody wants to pay. But these ad networks are just horrific and they need to be reined in. You do not need targeted advertising. You do not need to track people to present ads and make money. Advertising has been dumb for centuries and it was just fine. I'm not against ads. I'm against the tracking. Okay, I don't like ads, but, <laughs> but I'm not against them. So anyway, yes, please use ad blockers. It's for your safety. All right, moving on. This is, an, uh, this is from the Hacker News. It's a little article about Microsoft's new passwordless option. Uh, you probably saw this pop up because whenever, <laughs> whenever somebody has something that's the password killer, it makes all the news because we all hate passwords. So <laughs> let, me, let me read real quick from this article from the Hacker News. Microsoft on Wednesday announced a new passwordless mechanism that allows users to access their accounts without a password by using Microsoft Authenticator, Windows Hello, a security key, or a verification code sent by SMS or email. And to be clear, it's that first one that's new. The change is expected to be rolled out in coming weeks. And this is a quote from Vasu Jakal, who is Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Security, Compliance, and Identity. And he says, quote, Except for auto-generated passwords that are nearly impossible to remember, we largely create our own passwords. But given the vulnerability of passwords, and by that he means the ones we create ourselves, requirements for them have gotten increasingly complex in recent years, including multiple symbols, numbers, case sensitivity, and disallowing previous passwords. Passwords are incredibly inconvenient to create, remember, and manage across all of our accounts in our lives, unquote. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute. 
Over the years, weak passwords have emerged as the entry point for a vast majority of attacks across enterprise and consumer accounts, so much so that Microsoft said there are about 579 password attacks every second, translating into a whopping $18 billion every year. The situation has also been exacerbated by the need to create passwords that are not only secure but are also easy to remember, often resulting in users reusing the same passwords for multiple accounts or relying on easy-to-guess passwords, ultimately making them vulnerable to brute-force password spraying attacks. Chakal notes that 15% of people use their pets' names for password inspiration, not to mention utilize family names and important dates like birthdays, with others banking on a formula for their passwords, like Fall 2021, which eventually becomes Winter 2021 or Spring 2022. By dropping passwords out of the equation, the idea is to make it difficult for malicious actors to gain access to an account by leveraging a combination of factors such as your phone, something you have, and biometrics, something you are, for identification. Customers can use the new feature to sign into Microsoft services such as Microsoft 365, Teams, Outlook, OneDrive, and Family Safety, but after linking their personal accounts to an authenticator app like Microsoft Authenticator and turning on the passwordless account setting under advanced security options then additional security options. Okay, so, I mean, what this is all premised on is that people create crappy passwords, and they do. But if you followed my advice and the advice of any security person who's probably ever talked to you, you don't make your own passwords. I don't know any of my passwords. They're all crazy. They're all ridiculous. They're impossible to remember, which also means they're impossible to guess. I use LastPass, but 1Password and Bitwarden are also really good, uh, and they can generate crazy, long, unique passwords for every account and website you have. And that is precisely what you should be doing. Now, this particular passwordless feature is for your Microsoft account, which on modern Windows machines is also how you log into your computer, which is different than Macintosh's, where your iCloud, which is kind of Apple's version of a Microsoft account, it's the cloud-based uh, account, is different from the, the username and password that you would use to log into your Macintosh computer. But basically, this is setting up a, a way that instead of it's something you know, a password, now it's something you have. So if you've got your phone handy and you've got this app installed, uh, you know, you'll be able to use this technique to sign into your, I guess, I don't know if you can use that to sign into your computer. Um, I, I haven't seen that in an article about this yet. But, you know, if you refuse to use a password manager, then yeah, this is arguably more secure and convenient. I mean, with an Apple, you can do things like I can unlock my computer with my Apple Watch, which I've set up in some cases. But honestly, it... <laughs> For most situations, and by the way, this only is for your limited to your Microsoft accounts, um, so it doesn't get rid of all passwords everywhere. You really just need to be using a password manager. All right, moving on. Uh, this is a, a shortcut from an article from the EFF who created the wonderful browser plugin called HTTPS Everywhere. And the title of this article is HTTPS is Actually Everywhere. For more than 10 years, EFF's HTTPS Everywhere browser extension has provided a much-needed service to users, encrypting their browser communications with websites and making sure they benefit from the protection of HTTPS wherever possible. Since we started offering HTTPS Everywhere, the battle to encrypt the web has made leaps and bounds. What was once a challenging technical argument is now a mainstream standard offered on most web pages. Now HTTPS is truly just about everywhere, thanks to the work of organizations like Let's Encrypt. We're proud of EFF's own CertBot tool, which is Let's Encrypt's software complement that helps web administrators automate HTTPS for free. The goal of HTTPS everywhere was always to become redundant. That would mean we'd achieved our larger goal, a world where HTTPS is so broadly available and accessible that users no longer need an extra browser extension to get it. Now that world is closer than ever, with mainstream browsers offering native support for an HTTPS-only mode. With these simple settings available, EFF is preparing to deprecate the HTTPS Everywhere web extension as we look to new frontiers of secure protocols like SSL and TLS. After the end of this year, the extension will be in maintenance mode for 2022. We know many different kinds of users have this tool installed and want to give our partners and users the needed time to transition. We will continue to inform users that there are native HTTPS-only browser options before the extension is fully sunset. Now, the article goes on to tell you just that. So there is a link in the show notes, of course. And if you just go to EFF.org, it's probably one of the top articles there. Uh, but basically, it tells you for all the major browsers today how to enable HTTPS-only mode in the browser itself. 
But I would just like to call attention to the really cool part of this is that they have, we've done it. I mean, it really did used to be a pain in the butt and cost money to implement basic HTTPS communications on the web. As somebody who owns several websites, I would have had to pay, I don't know, some amount of money. Anything above zero makes a lot of people just say, eh, I don't need it. But it really is important that we encrypt everything on the web. And I've used Let's Encrypt myself on my websites and made sure that my websites have a valid certificate and HTTPS uh, supported. Basically, it looks like most other websites have done this too because we made it super easy and we made it free, which is as it should be. Now, one quick note, HTTPS, the S stands for secure. All that really means is that the communication between you and that website is encrypted. It doesn't vouch really for what website you're going to. You can still go to bad websites that are encrypted. So that little lock icon, uh, a lot of people took that to mean that it was quote unquote safe. uh, And they interpreted that to mean that they were uh, on a, a good website, but that is not what that means. Nevertheless, it is still a good thing uh, and very important for that traffic to be encrypted anyway. So anyway, congratulations to EFF uh, for <laughs> basically helping to create a world where that tool is no longer needed. All right, last article, and then we got to get to some uh, cyber tips. So this is about the Amazon Astro, and you have probably saw this on the news because it's such a cute story, and this would be the kind of thing you'd see on your morning news shows or today or whatever. So Amazon has come up with a little home robot called Astro. Uh, and let me just read part of this article from The Verge. Some of the people building Amazon's Astro home robot are not impressed with it, according to a report by Vice. One person who worked on the robot, which was announced today, and this would have been uh, last week, reportedly called it a, quote, disaster that's not ready for release, unquote, while another said that it was, quote, unquote, terrible, and the idea that it'd be a useful accessibility device, and parenthetically it says, uh, part of Amazon pitch is that Astro can help with elder care, was, quote, absurdist nonsense, unquote. The sources also mentioned that the robot doesn't handle stairs well, with one even saying that it would, quote, throw itself down them if presented the opportunity, unquote. To make matters worse, Vice also reports that the robot is fragile and that several devices had broken. That's not great news for a $1,000 or $1,500 robot that lives on the floor where it's prone to being stepped on by children, kicked by inattentive adults, or attacked by pets displeased with its presence. After the publication of this article, Amazon sent a statement to The Verge and suggested that the documents cited in the story were outdated and that the characterizations don't reflect how well Astro works today. Leaked documents and videos of developer meetings obtained by Vice also show that Astro is doing a lot of surveillance with its facial recognition systems and the feature where it follows people around if it doesn't recognize them. Vice's sources say that it's not great at actually figuring out who people are, which could lead to Astro annoyingly nipping at the heels of people it should know. One of the people who worked on it called the data collection a, quote, privacy nightmare, unquote. So here is Amazon's official response to this story. They said, these characterizations of Astro's performance, mast, and safety systems are simply inaccurate. Astro went through rigorous testing on both quality and safety, including tens of thousands of hours of testing with beta participants. This includes comprehensive testing on Astro's advanced safety system, which is designed to avoid objects, detect stairs, and stop the device where and when necessary. Unquote. It's not necessarily surprising that Astro is always watching, though. It comes with a Ring Protection Pro subscription, and Amazon's own marketing for the robot shows off that it can be used as a security device, but in the context of wild animals entering your home rather than people. The most surprising thing is that we're seeing leaked documents, videos, and hearing from grudging developers on the same day the device was announced. Someone, or multiple someones, inside Amazon must not be swayed by the robot's charms. The leak also somewhat recontextualizes Amazon's invite-based rollout. You currently can't just buy the robot. You have to request an invite, a process which requires filling out a survey to indicate whether your house would be a good fit for Astro, which includes a question about what style stairs you have. It's possible Amazon is trying to put these bots into the best-case scenario to see if they could even survive that. All right, so I guess I should have described this before I did the article. If you have not seen this yet, it's... A little thing looks like maybe, uh, by default, no more than a couple feet high. It's a pair of wheels that balances itself, kind of like a Segway, if you've ever seen one of those, with a kind of an iPad head on top. It's got uh, a flat 
panel that displays kind of a cutesy little face and some messages on it, and it can tilt up and down to look at you. And of course, it's got a camera. And in this article, it talked about the mast and basically built into the pole on top of this thing that holds the little tablet face is a camera built on a telescoping mast. So this periscope basically can pop up and look at things and look at you and whatever and do surveillance. But, you know, obviously it's probably also trying to avoid objects and whatever, but it's just super creepy. And as we'll find out in next week's uh, interview where I kind of get off on a tangent on this, but I'm a technologist. I'd love this stuff from a pure sci-fi perspective. This stuff is really cool to me. I mean, I hope to someday have a really cool home robot, but man, we've got to really fix our security and privacy before I would ever do such a thing. And we, we've got a ways to go. And Amazon certainly is not a company I would trust with such a thing. All right. So that's the news of the week. Now, uh, this is, as I said, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And CISA has released um, for week one uh, some tips. And the, the theme for week one, starting today, is to be cyber smart. And it says, as our lives have become increasingly dependent on technology, virtually all personnel and business data is kept on internet-connected platforms, which can become a goldmine for bad actors. The first full week of Cybersecurity Awareness Month will highlight best security practices and focus on general cyber hygiene to keep your information safe. Own your role in cybersecurity by starting with the basics. Creating strong passwords and using multi-factor authentication, backing up your data, and updating your software are great places to start. This is a great way to do your part and be cyber smart. Okay, a lot of marketing stuff there. But they, they rattle off, I think, eight different things here. Things we've talked about many times before, but you know, it's cybersecurity month, so let's just walk through these, shall we? Uh, number one, make a long, unique passphrase. Length. Trump's complexity. A strong passphrase is a sentence that is at least 12 characters long. Focus on positive sentences or phrases that you like to think about and are easy to remember. All right, I got to take issue with that already. First of all, passphrase will never be 12 characters long if you're doing it right. A passphrase, like maybe one you would generate by going to d20key.com, is a series of words. And you're going to want, uh, if you really want something secure, you're going to want four to six truly random words. And then you come up with some little mnemonic device to help you remember these crazy, seemingly unrelated words in such a way that you can remember this password. Or you just, like I said, you just use a password manager and have it create crazy passwords for you. All right, number two, passphrases aren't enough. Use two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, like biometrics, security keys, or a unique one-time code through an app on your mobile device, whenever offered. Absolutely. Uh, Two-factor authentication is really a great way to bump up your security. Um, even if you're using great passwords, uh, there are certain hacks that find ways around your password. And so you're going to want this second level. You want defense in depth. So having two different things that the bad guy's got to get through. Uh, and the second of which, which is not your primary, but your secondary protection method, requires that they have your cell phone, or at least a SIM card in a phone that makes it look like your cell phone, which is not as hard as it should be. But if you're using uh, a TOTP or time-based one-time password app like Authy or Google Authenticator, it will just create uh, six-digit codes on the fly every 30 seconds on your device. And that is something that even SIM jacking or SIM swapping can't attack. So two-factor authentication is huge. You should absolutely be using it wherever you can. Again, I like the app Authy for this. But as we're going to find out, Apple is actually building this into their systems, too. We'll talk about that when we get to the tip of the week. Okay, moving on. Next up from the list. When in doubt, throw it out. Links in email, tweets, texts, posts, social media messages, and online advertising are the easiest way for cybercriminals to get your sensitive information. Be wary of clicking on links or downloading anything that comes from a stranger or that you were not expecting. Essentially, don't trust links. Okay, now in practice, this is hard to do. But that last Second to last part there, uh, the penultimate statement there is really the key one. If, you know, if you get a link out of nowhere or a, uh, an email out of nowhere with a big button in it or an attachment and you were not expecting it, that is something that should be suspect. Now, if you just, you know, logged into your bank and said, I need to reset my password, you know, and so they send you an email with a link in it, that's to be expected. You can go ahead and click on that link. In fact, if you don't... <laughs> you're not going to be able to reset your password. 
Also, if you get a monthly statement from your bank or something like that, you know, that's expected. Those documents can probably be opened safely. But it's when you get those unsolicited ones out of the blue that you really got to watch out for when, you know, PayPal sends you a thing that says, sorry, we've closed your account. Or Amazon says, there's problems with your account. Click here to log in and fix it. Or, hey, you know, we're shipping you that $5,000 thing you asked for. If you've got any problems with that, click here to fix it. Those are the ones you really got to watch out for. Be really careful clicking on random links. Okay, next up. Keep a clean machine. Keep all software on internet-connected devices, including personal computers, smartphones, and tablets, current to reduce risk of infection from ransomware and malware. Configure your devices to automatically update or to notify you when an update is available. Yep, perfect. Agree completely. Next, back it up. Protect your valuable work, music, photos, and other digital information by making an electronic copy and storing it safely. If you have a copy of your data and your device falls victim to ransomware or other cyber threats, or fire or flood or whatever, you will be able to restore the data from a backup. Use the 321 rule as a guide to backing up your data. The rule is keep at least three copies of your data and store two backup copies on different storage media, with one of them being located off site. Yep. Totally agree, and we talked about that on the show recently. Next up, own your online presence. Every time you sign up for a new account, download a new app, or get a new device, immediately configure the privacy and security settings to your comfort level for information sharing. Regularly check these settings at least once a year to make sure they are still configured to your comfort. And you know what? That's actually not a bad idea, because these things do change, especially Google and Facebook. They, <laughs> It's shifting sands. It's a moving target. It's really hard to make sure that you've constantly got the right thing. So, yeah, at least on a yearly basis. Maybe part of your New, Re- New Year's resolutions or something, you know, pick some time of year. Maybe International Data Privacy Day, which is in January, might be a good one. And just go through your various apps and look at all the security and privacy settings and make sure that they still make sense to you. And while you're at it, you know, eliminate any apps that you're no longer using and check the permissions on all those apps to make sure they still need access to all the things you've given them access to in the past, like your location, your contacts, your photos, things like that. All right, a couple more here. Share with care. Think before posting about yourself and others online. Consider what a post reveals, who might see it, and how it might affect you or others. Consider creating an alternate persona that you use for online profiles to limit how much of your own personal information you share. That's actually a great idea. It's kind of hard to even practice. A lot of these places require you to sign up with your email address, uh, though we've got some solutions to that coming up. Uh, And most people only have one email address, maybe two. But yeah, if you can, if you can compartmentalize, if you can you know, make it hard for them to figure out that, you know, you logged into Facebook here as the same person that's logged into Twitter over there. That's the same person that's logged into LinkedIn over there. That's also the same person that's on pictures over here, etc. cetera. Uh, if you make it hard for them to figure out that those are all the same person, that's a good thing. And one of the ways you can do that is making sure you're not using the same email address on all those accounts. Now, it's harder to get away with not using the same phone number. And unfortunately, a lot of these things are making it really hard to avoid giving them a phone number. But if you can avoid giving out your phone number, please do because it's, it's, it's almost become like a government ID because nobody ever changes their number anymore and you pretty much have it for life. All right, last one. Get savvy about Wi-Fi hotspots. Public wireless networks and hotspots are not secure, which means that anyone could potentially see what you're doing on your laptop or smartphone while you're connected to them. Limit what you do on public Wi-Fi and avoid logging into key accounts like email and financial services. Consider using a virtual private network or VPN or personal mobile hotspot if you need a more secure connection. And I think we just recently talked about this on the show as well, and I had a blog article about it. So yeah, agree. All right, so now, tip of the week, and there's actually going to be a lot of them here, and they're going to relate kind of back to some of these things. And I said, I was going to talk about this and, you know, I, I could be talking about Android too, but I'm not an Android guy. Um, you know, and Google has done some good work in this arena and, uh, I will try to call it out when I see it, but iOS and Apple have just really, really gone the extra mile to try to create some really great security and privacy features. So iOS 15 just dropped last week, or maybe it was the week before now, but it came with a lot of really great features. Uh, and I want to kind of walk through some of those now. I've got a, a blog article about this as well that you might check out. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have this. It came last night. Uh, and importantly, the article has links for how to enable uh, and use all of these features. I'm just going to kind of give you a highlight here. But there's also a link in the show notes to that same blog article. All right. So first up, Apple has moved Siri processing, which is the voice recognition or voice to text feature 
completely onto the device, which is honestly astounding. Um, the way these things, you know, used, the way it used to work is because it required such amazing processing power, you would say something and the device was only smart enough to recognize its wake word, which was the, I'm not going to say it here because I don't want to mess up with your devices. Um, but it's the Siri phrase that we've all been taught to say when we want the device to listen to us. And once it hears that, it starts to record what it hears next and tries to interpret that, you know, that voice, what you're saying, uh, and turn that into uh, back into text, which it can then process. And what it had done in the past was it would send that information up to a computer in the sky, a cloud server, to do that interpretation and send the response back. Now, it was all automated. Uh, there was, you know, uh, Apple and Google and uh, Amazon got in some hot water when it was kind of came to light. It wasn't really a secret, but it kind of came to light that every once in a while humans did hear those snippets. But it was part of a quality control thing, you know, and they had to have humans to help, you know, kind of grade the homework, basically, and make sure that these voice recognition systems were getting it right. And, you know, if they were doing it right, then all these snippets were anonymous. You know, so unless you happen to know somebody that worked in that department, and they would recognize your voice. It was mostly anonymous. You know, I get it. But I also understand that they should have been more open about that and been more straightforward in telling you how to opt out of that, which they've all now done. But now iPhones have become so amazingly powerful. The chips that Apple is making that go in these phones uh, are, are just amazing. The amount of computing power, you know, in your hand is just crazy. And uh, so now it's gotten powerful enough that actually it, for most cases, this voice to text doesn't even need to leave the phone. It all happens locally, which is, which is just great. Uh, and this, this feature I think works back. It still needs a, a modern iPhone. So I think phones that are up to maybe three years old, I think it was the XR and the XS models were the oldest ones that uh, will support this with iOS 15. Uh, but anyway, that, that is a welcome development. And I can't wait for all of this kind of AI uh, and machine learning stuff to fall, you know, locally onto my stuff so that I have full control over it and that data never leaves. All right. So they've also got some other features and the key thing to remember about a lot of these, and I'll call it out when I see it, is that many of these features only work with Apple software. Um, for instance, only work if you're using Apple's browser Safari or only work if you're using Apple's mail program called mail. Uh, and this is one of them. So this is called mail privacy protection. And what this is trying to do for the most part is obfuscate at least the tracking that goes on in some emails. Now, as somebody who sends out a newsletter and I use a service for this and that service that I use puts these quote unquote analytics into these emails for me. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of the whole point. So it's kind of hard to turn that off. Uh, but you know, they include little kind of tracking things and the whole point being that they want to be able to tell you, you know, how many of your emails were actually opened, how many people actually read what you sent, when did they read it? Where did they come from? Or where was their device when they read it? And, you know, and then other things too, like, you know, did they click on any links in, in your email and things like that? Those are all analytics. And, you know, as long as that's just going to me or whoever is sending that email, you know, I, I think that's somewhat reasonable. And it's honestly very valuable information. But unfortunately, a lot of that information is also then turned around and sold to third parties. Or in some of these services also to make money, um, put other things in there to help uh, track as well. And anyway, what, what it comes down to is a lot of them put in these things called tracking pixels and a tracking pixel is often a, literally a one by one, like a one pixel tall and a one pixel wide image, which is too small to see that tracks you. And, and the way it does that is or at least one of the main ways this is done is that image file, that one by one pixel has a name. And when your mail program goes to load the images, which it probably does not do by default. And this is why, but when you tell it to load all the images in your email, it finds this little tiny, basically invisible image. And it goes and loads that image somewhere off the internet. More than likely it's going to this analytics company or to a data mining company. And that image that they stuck in there has a unique name and they remembered who they gave that unique file name to. So that when you open it and some somebody from somewhere requests that image like, Oh, Hey, that was the pixel we put in Carrie's email. So Carrie must've just opened that email and let me note down what the date and time was when he opened that email. And Oh, here's the IP address 
for his device. And from that IP address, I can see that Carrie is somewhere kind of in Raleigh, North Carolina. So again, if, if, all, if all they were doing that for was to come up with some, with some metrics and statistics that I could see as the newsletter sender to find out how many people actually look at my email, I mean, that, you know, that's nice. And I think that's, for the most part, harmless. But the problem is when they turn around and sell that to somebody else. So anyway, all that to say that Apple has this new mail privacy protection thing, which basically inserts kind of a dummy reader, uh, a proxy. Um, they kind of pre-open your mail and cache those images and stuff. And the net effect of that is that the, the people at the far end don't really get useful data. They do get some data, but they don't really get useful data. Now, I, I, I think if you still load that email and, and go ahead and uh, load those images, it will get that information as well. But at least it's muddying the waters. Uh, I think they can do better at this. I think we can find better ways to make this work. Like I honestly, I still, I mean, why don't you just find any images in the picture that are only one pixel tall and just ditch those completely. Like when I click on load images, I don't want to load all images. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, anyway, I think they could still do better at this, but Hey, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. All right. Another one. And here, but here's the kicker again, is that this only works if you're using the Apple mail program. If you've downloaded and installed Outlook or the Outlook app for your phone, or if you're using like the Google app to read your mail, this will not help you there. You have to be using Apple's mail program and you've got to enable it, which is under settings, mail and privacy protection. Now I'm not going to go through actually and tell you how to do all of these. Just find the article because it's got links that tell you all sorts of great more info with pictures and everything and show you how to set these up. So go to the show notes and get the link to the blog article to find all those kind of details. I just want to give you some highlights here on, on what's there. All right, next up, there's another email feature called hide my email. And this is really cool. Now, this might sound familiar because I've talked about similar services before, but there's one kicker with that this feature has that the other ones don't. So when you sign up for a newsletter like mine uh, or, you know, go to a website that invariably says, you know, you must log in to continue, get a free account, or, you know, maybe they'll try to entice you with, you know, hey, if you log in, you can customize your, your settings or we'll remember you better or whatever. They're trying to get your email address. And often once they get that email address, they will use it to send you spam email and often they will use it to correlate you with other information that might be out there on you, selling it to data brokers, et cetera. So one way to combat that would be to give every one of these guys a different email address. And so then if you start getting a whole bunch of crap from one email address that you gave to Target or Home Depot or whatever, then you can just ignore that one email address. But in practice, it's not practical really for everyone to go and create a new email account for every account they've got online. I mean, I've got hundreds. So in the past, you know, some companies like Google have come up with ways of creating email aliases, which, so for example, if your email is, you know, Joe Schmo at gmail.com, if you put Joe Schmo as the user ID, then put the plus sign and then add anything after that, any valid set of characters, you know, like Joe Schmo plus target at gmail.com. That will route to Joe Schmo at gmail.com. Everything from the plus sign on is completely ignored by Gmail. And so Gmail considers all those addresses to be the same. So that might be one way you could do something like this. But a lot of email, I mean, if you just look at the email address, it's pretty obvious what's going on there. And it wouldn't be hard to write some sort of system that would just say, you know, throw away everything after the plus sign. And then, hey, look, that's Joe Schmo. But what Apple has done, and some others have done too, have come up with a way to generate a completely random email address on the fly. So I'm going to this new site says, Hey, give me your email address and sign up for this newsletter, but I don't want to give them a regular email address. So I go to this hide my email service and I say, give me a fresh random email address. And so you put that in there instead. And what Apple does behind the scenes is they forward all email to that address to whatever other email address you specify. By default, it's your iCloud email, but it could be anything. And it will keep track of all these emails for you. You can give each of these things uh, their own label and a little description. So if at any point in time you're getting way too much crap, uh, maybe they sold you out and gave that email address to other people as well, and you're getting a lot of junk for that email, you could just disable or deactivate that one account without screwing up the rest of your email, which is great. Now, Firefox Relay and DuckDuckGo have something very similar. Uh, but what they don't have, but Apple's, does allow, which is just killer, is you can reply 
to emails. So <laughs> here's the problem with uh, without having that feature. So you, you give them this really cool dummy address that's totally random, but it's, it still gets to you. It still gets routed and forwarded to your account so you can read it, but they didn't get your real email address and you can now block that. But if it turns out that for some reason you need to reply to that email, like, uh, you know, it's amazon.com or whatever, where they might send you something and you, hey, if this if you had trouble with your order, then reply and let us know or whatever. As soon as you go to reply, it uses your real email address. So that causes two real problems. First of all, it gives away your real email address. Second of all, it's going to confuse the hell out of the person who sent you that email because the response is coming from a completely different email address. So it really only works that, that without this response feature, it would only work for one-way emails. So strictly a newsletter, for example, or registering a product, if you're only ever expecting to receive emails and never need to reply. But Apple takes it one step further, and their service will actually let you reply to that email and still hide your email address, which is really cool. So I plan to start using that soon. All right, next up, Private Relay. Now, this is this is kind of weird, and it's a little hard to describe, but it's sort of a cross between a VPN and Tor. And we've talked about the Tor network before. It's actually really more like Tor Lite, but it's a really cool idea. And uh, let me explain it this way. Whatever you access on the internet, whenever you stream a video or get an email or go to a website, under the covers, the internet protocol that makes that happen is this request response dynamic. Your device sends a request for something and the website you're getting it from, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Gmail, whatever, sends a response to that request. And in order to send a response to that request, it has to know where to send it. So we have addresses. We've got a from address and a to address, like a letter. So if I send somebody a letter and I want them to reply, well, then my return address on that had better be correct. But here's the thing with internet protocol addresses. Your IP address can say a lot about you, in particular, where you are. Not within like a couple feet or anything, but certainly with probably within your city. And that location information is really important metadata. Your location and tracking that location over time says an, a lot about you. And it's something you should not be giving away freely. But we do because that's kind of the way the internet works. So Apple's come up with this thing called Private Relay. And what it does is it, it obscures one end's information from the other end but somehow still all works. So what they've done is they've put two relays between you and whatever website you're trying to go to, two proxies. The first one of those is Apple. The second one of those is a third-party partner, and, and I think so far it's Cloudflare. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you'll be able to choose that or not. It's still kind of in public beta, but it's some third-party that's not Apple. And so what happens on your device is your request, that is the website you want to go to, and the other information that comes with that request, like if you go into amazon.com, I mean, that's usually not the whole request under the covers. It's slash blah, blah, blah. You're going to look at some product and maybe you don't want other people to know what that product is and certainly not associate that back with your IP address, which might eventually be used to identify you. So you want to obscure that. So there's kind of the two parts. There's where you're going and what you're requesting. And then there's where you're coming from, who you are, your IP address. So your phone wraps up in, in, in a little encrypted ball, the where you want to go and what you want to get. That's all encrypted. Apple cannot see that. And then sends that to Apple's relay server. So in order for Apple to reply to you, they need your IP address. So they do have your IP address. But then Apple, based on your settings, and we'll talk about the settings in a second, based on your settings and how much information you want to give away based on your location, and there are cases when you would want some, it creates a dummy IP address and then sends the encrypted message with a dummy response address onto the second relay. So the second relay, in this case, Cloudflare, has the capability to decrypt it. You've, it's a public-private key thing, so your device knows how to encrypt it in such a way that only Cloudflare can decrypt it. So now Cloudflare gets your request, and they decrypt it. And they now know where you want to go, uh, the, you know, the destination, and what the request, what is it you're, you're requesting from that destination. But they don't know your IP address, so they don't know who sent it. So they turn around, they create another dummy IP address in the same region as the one that they got from Apple, and then they send the request on to your final destination. And then that destination gets the request. They are getting the wrong IP address. They are not getting your IP address. They're getting some IP address with 
some geographical information, but they, they can't trace it back to you. And in particular, that IP address is going to keep changing. So they don't even know, you know, site to site that it's the same IP address. And then they respond and then Cloudflare's proxy bundles that up an encryption thing and sends it back to Apple because Apple knows where you are. And so now Apple has the response. They can't read it because it's encrypted. And they send that back on to you because they know who you are because they do have your real IP address. So basically through this kind of handoff procedure, you know, they've split the knowledge to the point where no one person along that chain knows both who you are, in other words, your IP address and what you're requesting. They know each of them knows half, but they don't know both. And the far end is none the wiser and can't track you. That is pretty darn cool. And that's kind of how Tor works, except Tor has three nodes and it's more complicated than that. So the uh, one thing to note here is that this allows you to give two options for how much you want to obscure your location because your, your location does matter. I mean, for example, um, if they're, if you're coming from Spain, the response is going to be different than if you're coming from Germany or United States. I mean, they will use that location to figure out what language to respond to you in sometimes, not always, but sometimes also your time zone. If whatever you're doing is time sensitive, then your IP address will also be used to figure out what time zone you're in. So you can give it, that's the most coarse level you can give it. You could say only tell them my country and time zone. Or if you want, if you're looking for restaurants in your area or someplace to get your haircut or an auto shop or whatever, then they need more granularity. At that point, Apple, if you select the other option and give them something more local, uh, it will at least give you like the right city so that when they're looking at your IP address to figure out where you're coming from, they're going to give you stuff that is in your area, but they're still not going to know your real IP address or your really specific location. Now, some caveats. Again, this is this only works if you're using Safari on your iOS device. I think this is going to come out in Monterey, uh, the latest macOS update when that finally comes out. But right now it's only on iPhone and iPad, and it's only if you're using Safari. If you use another browser, it won't help you. Also, it requires that you have an iCloud Plus account, uh, which you can get into that for 99 cents a month, which is pretty cheap. But also, it is not available in a lot of authoritarian countries like China and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Russia and some of those other countries. So lots of caveats to that, but it's a cool idea. Uh, I like what they're doing. I hope we can see more of that kind of stuff. And hopefully someday it will be able to be applied to, you know, apps other than Apple's apps. All right, real quick, just a few other ones I want to touch on. Uh, there's a secure paste function, which you may not have really thought about it, but on a device, when you do a copy and paste, that goes onto a virtual clipboard. Uh, so that, you know, you go on one app, you copy, paste something, and then you go to another app and you paste it, right? So you might think, well, the only <laughs> the only apps that would see that are the one I copied it from and the one I copied it to. In practice, that's actually not true. And I'm surprised that it took this long to fix this. But And, and this is true on Android to some degree as well. Uh, that clipboard is actually available to, I think, all running apps. <laughs> so, you know, if you go and clip a password or a credit card number or something like that, it's possible that unscrupulous other apps might peek at that and try to do something nefarious with it. Well, Apple has plugged that and secure paste. Now I, I believe the way I understand it is it is only available to the next app and only that app once you paste it. Now, password managers have tried to thwart this problem by basically flushing your clipboard after you paste it. I don't know how they do that. Uh, I've seen them do it before. If you've ever tried to paste a password more than once, sometimes you'll find that the second time you go to paste it, it's blank. Well, that's because they basically wiped out what was on the clipboard with a, with junk so that it, uh, to try to avoid this problem. But anyway, this is a real solution to this problem and uh, honestly should have happened a long time ago, but I'm glad it's there. Uh, Apple also has a new privacy report. It's called an app privacy report. It's under settings and privacy. And if you turn this on, it actually kind of keeps a seven day running list of all the privacy related actions taken by all of the apps that are running. Like how often is this app checking my location? How often is this app looking into my contacts? If you're curious about that, that's great. I'm, I honestly like it because now that means a lot of, you know, Amateur researchers out there could be looking at these things and raising a red flag if all of a sudden some app goes rogue and starts really, you know, hammering your privacy information and sending it to weird places. Uh, so anyway, you can turn that on. It keeps I think, a rolling seven-day window of information. You can download the file if you want. I, I, that's that's cool. Again, transparency. Love it. Uh, Apple is building an authenticator like Authy or Google Authenticator. It's building into its systems now, which is great. And you set them up pretty much like, you know, any other authenticator app. 
except that if you're, of course, if you're using Apple's app, if you're using Safari and you're on, let's say, Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and you set up two-factor authentication from your mobile device, when you get to the page where it shows a little QR code or whatever to set it up, you can actually just kind of tap that now and, and directly set it up on your phone, um, which is really handy. And then when you come back to that app and that app asks you for your two-factor authentication code, if you're doing it through Safari, uh, it will automatically fill that in for you, which is really cool. It's very convenient, but it's only Apple. And I, that's, that's a problem. Now it took Apple a while, but eventually they did allow third-party password managers to plug into other apps. So right now, if I'm on a, an app and it asks for a password, I can bring up LastPass and fill it in, which is great. So I'm hoping eventually uh, they will allow uh, other apps like Authy to plug into this, uh, which would be great. But, you know, if you're all into Apple and you only ever use the Apple apps, um, this is really nice. It's a great way to go. And if you've been kind of holding back on getting a two-factor authentication for this, this will make it very convenient. And one more thing that's kind of interesting, and I haven't looked into this too much, but Apple now has this thing called separation alerts. So you can actually tell it to help you monitor your devices. And if you were to leave your phone or to leave your Apple Watch or leave your, you know, your laptop, your Mac laptop somewhere, and you've got the Find My feature turned on for those devices, it can tell you if you're separated from it. So I, I guess for that to work, you would have to have two Apple devices, like you know your iPhone and your laptop, and then those two things go apart from each other and it would warn you and say, Hey, you know, those two things are not near each other anymore. And you told me to let you know if that happens. Now, obviously you need some exceptions to that rule. And this feature does allow for that. You can basically say, okay, when things are at home, that's okay. You know, if I leave my laptop at home and then I leave the house without it, that's fine. But anyway, it's really, I, I think that's kind of cool. I haven't seen the security aspects of this, how they implemented it, but it's, you know, it's probably just all part of Find My. And if those two devices get too far apart from each other, they will warn you. So if you someone steals it or you leave it somewhere and forgot about it, um, not only will Find My help you find it, but it'll actually now notify you, hey, uh, did you mean to leave this behind? So anyway, that's kind of cool. All right, there you have it. That's a whole bunch of tips of the week today and some really cool iOS features for you. All right, that's it. That's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Really interesting interview coming up next week with Melanie Ensign, who you might remember that name. She was the one who helped get me hooked up with Jeff Moss for my DEF CON interview. And Michelle Dennity, who used to be the chief privacy officer at a lot of companies, actually, but Cisco being one of them. And I tried to work for her for a couple of years before she left and came so close that it just never happened. But these are two amazing privacy gurus. And I know they knew each other and I knew them. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we all three got together and talked about some privacy stuff? And man, did they have some opinions. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be tricky, actually. There was, I got probably over two hours worth of material that I'm going to have to pare way back for the interview. But, you know, if you're a patron, I will give you all the, uh, the leftover stuff in a really nice, fat, juicy bonus content for my patrons. So that's coming next week. We'll have more national cybersecurity awareness tips for sure. And I've got some other really cool interviews in the hopper. Fingers crossed uh, they could be amazing interviews. I'm trying to get them done. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll hope they happen. Now, one more thing. The challenge coins are back. Uh, if for some reason you're a brand new listener and you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com, it's probably the top article there. Or if you go to my website, d20key.com, uh, and go to the coin tab, you'll find out all about it. And what I've done uh, as a promotion to attract new patrons on Patreon is I minted a custom challenge coin. It's two inches wide, it's hefty, it's thick. Uh, and if you're familiar with challenge coins, it's uh, often a military or law enforcement thing, but it's not just there anymore. It's actually used all over the place now. And they're kind of given away as very special thank yous to people or to indicate membership in a group. And so in this case, it's for my brand new patrons. If you become a patron on Patreon at the $5 level, you get one coin of your choice and they come in three different colors. You can get copper, gold, or silver. Or if you become a patron at the, at the knight errant level, part of my round table, not only will you get a coin, you will get two coins in the colors you choose. 
and also some other fun benefits as well. I will announce your knighthood to the realm. In other words, I will mention your name on the podcast. That's optional. You don't have to, but if you'd like, I would be happy to do it. And if you if you want, like we did with this episode, you could create an intro tagline for the podcast. So fun stuff. And all my patrons could talk to me on Discord. I've got a Discord server, which is, you know, kind of like Slack or Teams or whatever. It's a private chat server where you can interact directly with me and with the other patrons. And we have a lot of fun there. I really enjoy hanging out and uh, interacting with the patrons. It's nice to actually be able to conversation because right now I'm sitting in a small little cramped room talking at a microphone and looking at my laptop. And it's a lot more fun when I'm actually interacting directly with, uh, with people. So here's the details on the promotion. It starts today. And to make this work out financially, uh, I have to at least wait for two months worth of patronage. Now, the way Patreon actually works is they charge you as soon as you sign up. And so it'll really be like a month uh, before you've got two months in. It'll be basically now, today, or whatever this week, and then it'll be again uh, around the 1st of November. And as soon as that happens, uh, I will send you your coin. They are really cool. Uh, you got It's hard to describe. Go to the website. It's got a big old dragon on the front uh, attacking a castle whose drawbridge is down. But it's also a functional security item. It's, it, it works as a 20-sided die, which uh, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, you know that a d20 is crucial. You're rolling them all the time to find out what happens when you swing your sword at the monster or when they swipe at you. So this coin actually functions as a d20 die. It's got a little nub on the back that makes it function like a top. So if you put it on a flat surface, it will spin. And on the top of it, around the edge, are the numbers 1 through 20 in random order. So you spin it, and then you stop it with your finger, and whatever number is right next to your finger, that is your die roll. So what do you do with that? How does that make you more secure? Well, you would use these die rolls to generate a random passphrase, which we talked about earlier in the show. And that is what the site d20key.com is about. So you can either go to the website and roll virtual dice there on the site and get your passphrase, or you can roll your own d20 or, I don't know, spin my d20 challenge coin to enter the numbers manually, and it will give you your passphrase. So I just think it is so cool. I am so glad I did this. I minted 100 of these things uh, earlier this year, uh, and since then, I've given away almost half of them. So they're going and going and gone. If you want to get yours, you better get it now. Now, will I make more of these in the future? Yeah, okay, I might. We'll see. But it's, it is not at all certain. So right now, there are only 100 of these on the planet. And if you want to get one or two, all you got to do is become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find my page there. There should be a public post available there that will talk about this as well. There's all sorts of ways to find the details on this promotion. But probably the one with the most information is on my blog, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. So this will go on for f- about four weeks. We're going to go till uh, November 2nd, the first Tuesday in November. So you've got a month, but don't wait. Uh, actually, some of the colors like copper uh, are already getting really scarce. So if you really want your choice of colors, get it in now. And one more thing I will say, and I, I have no idea how likely this is, but this is kind of the deal uh, with, with the challenge coin. If you present that coin to me in person, it's worth a drink on me. And I would absolutely love to pay for that drink. All right, everybody, that is it. Thanks for listening. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. That way you will not miss any more episodes. We've got some great interviews on the way. Again, lots of links in the show notes to all the articles we just talked about today. If there's something you want to learn more about, check that out in the show notes. And I hope with the challenge coin, I'll get some new patrons and be talking to you on Discord. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Drawbridge down.